take a look at our website, rte.ie slash Mooney. Yes, indeed. Now on RT Radio 1, the weather may have taken something of a turn today, but that's not going to stop Derek from bringing us the best of the great outdoors. It's time for Mooney Goes Wild. Hello and welcome to the programme. You can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. I hope you've recovered from all that heat last week. Oh, my goodness gracious me. And I used to say to people visiting Ireland, if you don't like the weather, wait a minute, it's sure to change. Boy, I've been waiting for an entire week. It's too warm for somebody like me, I'll be honest. I prefer it when it's raining and cooler. I don't want to lose my cool, so to speak. When you think back, if I'm not mistaken, the highest daily temperature recorded in Ireland was in Kilkenny Castle, In 1887, and it was 33.3 degrees Celsius, that was 1887, and then in more recent times in the Phoenix Park in 2022 when it was 33 degrees Celsius. I couldn't bear that. Now, last week it didn't get that hot. In Dublin, at any rate, it was around 28 was the hottest. In fact, it was so warm one day, I actually went out and bought a fan. Brought it into the studio with me. Can you hear it? In the background, I'll just turn it up a little bit so you can hear it. Just to keep us all cool. I'm still feeling the effects of the heat. Just put it up a little bit more. There you are. Is that making you feel nice and cool at home, boys and girls, mums and dads? Is it working? Is it working? Or are you too cold? Well, I bring it back down again. I bring it back down again. Anyway, it got me wondering during the week about the birds and the bees and the rest of the animal kingdom. Do they suffer from heat stress? Do they ever lose their cool? Niall Hatch is here with me in studio from Birdwatch Ireland and Mooney Goes Wild and Richard Collins is at his home in Malahide, no doubt with the window open enjoying a bit of a sea breeze. Richard, what do you make of all this? Derek, yes, uh, there I think are winners and there are losers, just as in our own case. Some people love the heat and others go down under it, can't stand it at all. So I think some, and you take things like swallows, house martens, swifts, they will do well. There'll be lots of insects, it'll be warm, swifts won't have to go torpid, the babies won't have to go torpid in the nest, that kind of thing. And the swallows will embark on maybe a third brood, some of them, uh, this time around. Make hay while the sun shines, literally, in this case. That's right, Richard. So that there are certainly winners and losers here. So for, for insect-eating birds like, like swallows and house martens, it's quite good for them because there's lots of more insects on the wing. It gives them that opportunity to perhaps get an extra brood away. And it's still plenty of time because a lot of our swallows, even though many do migrate during September, some will remain with us right through to October. So it's quite normal for them still to have uh, eggs or chicks at this stage. Been interesting as well to see some of the insect activity uh, recently. I had the, the great fortune of being on Rockabill Island uh, last week, uh, helping out my colleague Dr. Stephen Newton just with some checks there. On, on the avian flu situation to see to see what was happening and what's the latest? Well, we, we, we found we found a small number of carcasses oh of birds there, but but um, we know that there was hit worse during the summer. Most of the terns do seem to have got away, which is good to see. So, and um, what we did find though, now that the terns have left, it gives a chance for other creatures to be on the island. And we saw quite a few um, insects around, lots and lots of butterflies around at the moment, particularly small tortoise shells. I don't think I've ever seen so many. They're around. There's also um, a lovely moth called the silver Y moth, which is a day flying moth, and that was all over the island as well. Um, 
just on the vegetation looking for nectar and in turn those will be food for birds. It is harder though for some other species, birds like blackbirds for example, especially the youngsters which are now finding their way in the world. Mm. When it's dry for a prolonged period the ground gets harder, the worms get forced further down and we still don't have a lot of berries on the trees. I'm seeing a few blackberries and things around now at the moment but a lot of the, the, the berries um, such as of holly and rowan and so on that the blackbirds rely on in the autumn, they haven't fully formed yet so it's a bit of a transition period for them I suppose and the warm weather's not so great for them. Uh, but I have a reason for asking and it has to do with heat stress. Now I don't like the heat and my niece Avian who listens to the programme all the time she doesn't like the heat either and it appears the ducks in Harbour Park don't like the heat because I was walking through the park the other day and I noticed two ducks on the bank and two ducks on the water. Male and female on the bank, male and female on the water and we have a beautiful video which I made which you can have a look at on our website rte.ie forward slash Mooney. If it's not there now, it'll be there tomorrow. But please look at it because I've known the ducks in Herbert Park all my life. Literally, I was born beside it. So I have never seen this kind of behaviour before. And I thought, well, they must be gone quackers because of the heat. They're suffering from heat stress because they were having an argument. Have a listen to this. Now remember, this is two ducks on the bank and two ducks in the water quacking at each other the entire time. Now this went on and on and on and on and on and I was convinced it was heat stress, Nile Hatch. That could be certainly a part of it. Uh, the video is really interesting. It's quite comical actually because they're, they're not actually coming to blows. It's not a serious no. territorial dispute. It's more of a little squabble that they're having. It is interesting that they are clearly in two pairs, a male and female, on, on both sides of this. Uh, ducks, mallards particularly, they do tend to pair up from September. So actually, although it's not the nesting season now, they are forming those pair bonds and this seems to have already happened with these two. It could be that heat is playing a role here. Now, ducks, they're able to withstand quite warm temperatures. Their feathers are very good for insulation. We often think of insulation as something that would keep an animal warm, but it also helps to keep it cool when the outside temperature is warm. Also, a duck's body temperature is higher than ours. The temperature of a mallard's body, it's about 41 degrees centigrade. We're at 37 there. That's right, and, and that 4 degrees makes all the difference mm. because if our temperature went as high as that, we'd be well, we'd, we'd be very seriously ill, uh, if not dead. And uh, for, So the ducks, the, the temperature's probably not quite so bad, but there's a lot of glare as well. And what I think is happening, having watched the video carefully, I think that they're having some sort of dispute over who gets to hang out on the bank. Huh? Uh, it looks like quite a nice cool spot. It is. Vantage point. Lots yeah. of shade. Lots of shade, exactly. And I think that the, the pair that are in the water are remonstrating with the others up on the bank saying I want that spot. And it's interesting the ones on the bank do eventually relent after all the squabbling and all four go into the water and sort of paddle off. They're not actually hitting each other but there's sort of certainly a, a low level aggression going on there. But what was interesting, Niall, was if you come close to a duck, the duck is normally gone. Yeah. If you're not feeding them. Now I was there with my phone and I was videoing this and they paid no attention to me. There were other ducks as you will see on the video alongside them on the bank who weren't getting involved at all. They were quite comfortable and they were happy out. But this pair were going hell for leather. Richard, what do you think? Well, I agree with Niall. Um, pair formation is very tenuous at this time of year, of course. It, the most pairs don't really form up for several months yet, but some do start in September. And that's a rather curious time because females 
those are in short supply to some extent at this time of year. They have a higher mortality. They're much more vulnerable during the breeding season than males are. So the males uh, are um, at the pin of their collar to secure females. Now, in this case, there was two up on the bank, which might be paired. There were a male and a female. And two down below, which might be paired. But what I think is crucial in this case is the drop. They're looking up. There's something intimidating about somebody above you. No matter what you are, a pair above looking down have the advantage. And there's a kind of fear of somebody high up looking down at you. And the two up above are looking down at the two below. And the two below are doing the shouting and roaring and screaming. So I suppose the two above are intimidating the ones below. The ones below are protesting. The two above are answering something like that. But it's not rational. We can't expect rationality in ducks. <laughs> <laughs> That's the quote for the week. Uh, so, yeah, yes, exactly. And, and, and ducks as well, there's a lot more going on with mallards than meets the eye <laughs> often. Going on, yeah. there's, um, there, there's certainly some form of communication there. And we think of ducks as, as quacking, and they do. And with a mallard, that famous quack, quack, quack sound, that's the female that makes that, not the male. He makes other sort of noises, quack-like, but not quite the same. But they have loads of other vocalisations as well. For a duck species, they're very vocal. There's lots of communication going on. And part of that is because they live in close proximity and in, in a park like Herbert Park it's a little bit of an artificial situation because they're a higher concentration in a smaller area than they would be in the wider countryside where they have more space themselves mm. so there's more conflicts tend to happen performation tends to happen earlier there'll be a lot more extramarital affairs and things going on too because oh ducks, ducks are quite salacious it's interesting to see the kind of dynamics that happen with, with, with pairs of mallards as well because often there are disputes not quite territorial disputes but disputes over maybe the best feeding area or what's, whatever's going on what happens with those when pairs come into conflict the male of the aggressive pair he always goes to try to attack the female of the other pair. Um, and you see He never chase- takes on the other male? Not initially. Mm. He'll chase the female of the other pair in the air mm. and then the other male will usually follow up behind. And if the if it's one if it's one male taking on the female of the pair, then the, that female's mate will intervene often and try to try to assist. But if it's more than one male attacking, he often just washes his hands or his wings of the whole thing and just leaves leaves whatever happens, happens. And then maybe partners up with her again afterwards. It's really quite interesting. What's bizarre as well is that if you watch male mallards carefully and um, you'll see some interesting things if they have a squabble like this just the males do this they will then sometimes go off together afterwards and they both start drinking water beside each other putting the big beaks in the water and just drink drinking some of it down it seems to be an appeasement mechanism that they have it's almost like you know having a disagreement with someone and then going down the pub for a right, pint yeah, let's discuss this over a pint come on come on come on we can sort it all out we can sort you better first come on she likes you she doesn't like me maybe so, well what's going, what's going on? on absolutely yeah yeah she stays out of it she's wise too anyway richard speaking of parks that was herbert park and you can have a look at that video as I said on the website please do rte.ie forward slash Mooney and we always welcome your videos and photographs to Mooney at rte.ie but you were in Fairview Park the other day Richard having a look at the mute swans Yes, there is a, a pair there with their young, quite big now. They're, they're as big as the adults, really, but they're brown, grey in colour, of course. Swans are very family-oriented. The family stays together, prolonged stays together. So the babies are with their parents at all times. One of the pair of the adults was molting. Molting is important because what happens is that Ducks, geese and swans and other birds, some other birds as well, have to grow uh, new feathers and in doing so must shed the old ones. Every year or so they have to get rid of the flight feathers. The flight feathers are worn out, they're clapped out. So they shed them all at once, at which time they're flightless. 
Flying is essential to defence. If you want to defend your wife and family, you've got to be able to fly. So what the swans do is they straddle it. One of the pair loses the feathers first, and when it has grown its feathers, the other member of the pair, it molts then, and that is going on in that particular group. It was a very picturesque place there, I thought, and lots of other ducks there, and lots of gulls, of course. It's nice to see they're back breeding somewhere around there successfully. Let's have a listen. Here I am at the Tolka in Fairview, and it's fairly low tide, and in front of me we have a pair of swans and their six cygnets. The cygnets are as big as the herons now, but they are not bright and white. They are dull brown and sort of grey, that sort of colour. And they make little chirps, which sounds a little bit ridiculous from a bird so big. Now, the reason they're like that, of course, is that Daddy, who is with them, takes exception to white birds on his territory other than his mate. He can easily get angry and drive them out, as he will in a few weeks when they get whiter. When the little squeaky sounds they make, which sounds so ridiculous in a bird so big, this helps to disable his aggression as well. He's used to hearing that sound from chicks, and this helps to calm him down when he tends to get bolshy, as indeed he does. Now, interesting looking at them is that the female is in molt. That is to say, she's shed the flight feathers of her wings. This is because she has to grow new ones and that'll take six to eight weeks to grow those new feathers now they're doing very well of course the people are helping them handouts of bread and everything else and the gulls are benefiting from that too and there's lots of mallards the mallards are all around and they are in what's called eclipse plumage the beautiful greeny heads and glamorous plumage of mallard is replaced by a dull, nondescript brownie plumage. That is because they are molting also and can't fly. So they need the protection of camouflage. And if they went around with bright heads on them, well, they would be much more vulnerable. So they've gone into eclipse plumage. So that is the scene here, and it's lovely looking at them, uh, and the tide is obliging, and they're very content. This is, of course, where the terrible oil spill occurred back in the 80s, but um, hopefully nothing like that will happen to them here this year. It really is interesting to think about the, the molt of birds. This is the time of year when lots of birds are molting, most birds indeed, because the, the rigours of the breeding season have really taken their toll on their feathers. Uh, for migratory birds that are shortly about to leave us, they need to make sure that their feathers are in perfect condition. For birds like the swans there, they need to make sure that their feathers are in, again, tip-top condition so they can survive the rigours of the winter and have all proper insulation. But Richard was talking there about the eclipse plumage. Yes, and the ducks. The ducks, yes. Yeah, so something we only see in waterfowl where uh, they, they what happens is that these birds, they, they lose as Richard said, they lose all their flight feathers simultaneously, which means that they're rendered flightless for a period of a few weeks, which is very unusual. Most other birds, they lose one flight feather, then regrow it before they lose the next one. So they're never totally flightless. So what happens with with, with ducks particularly, they have what we call this eclipse plumage, which is where uh, the male, because he's flightless, all of a sudden his gaudy bright colours he usually wears, uh, they would be a disadvantage. He's not camouflaged. He's If he can't fly away, there's a danger. So what we see with, with many duck species, including the mallard, they molt into this eclipse plumage where they more closely resemble the female 
female. They lose the bright colours largely. They become much more muted and camouflaged just for a period of a few weeks while they're flightless and then they revert back to their normal plumage. And the mallards in your video clip from Herbert Park mm. there, they have just finished that eclipse molt. They're back in their normal plumage and they're looking stunning. They're in their I very best I was going to say condition. because you could still tell there was male and female there. That, that's right. And they're looking their best now because they've literally just regrown their green heads and all those flashy wing mm. feathers. So they look really, really smart. And then they'll wear those feathers again until the late summer when they then molt again. Uh, so they repl- all birds replace their feathers at least once a year. Some species even replace them twice. All right. Now we're fans of the corncrake on this programme, are we not, Niall? Oh, we are. I'm a big fan of corncrakes. And apparently the numbers are on the increase. Let's say hello now to Dr John Kerry, who manages the Corncrake Life Project and oversees the National Parks and Wildlife Service Corncrake Programme. Hello, John. How are you today? Hello, Derek. Hello, Niall. How are you doing? Great. So tell us all about this increase in numbers. Yeah, it's. Um, I guess it's a positive news story in what can often be a very negative space in, in, in conservation and in wildlife conservation in Ireland, Derek. But we're delighted to report that we have seen an increase in the corncrake numbers in 2023 from last year. Uh, but more importantly, the longer term trend over five years has been really positive. We've seen a 35% increase on the bird numbers since 2018. So we are operating off a very low base but seeing those kind of increases and a little bit of range expansion in the birds too, it's something that we can be cautiously optimistic about. Now, what do you put it down to? Um, I think there's several factors at play and when you're dealing with migratory bird species, a lot of the control is out of your hands. But for the past number of years, corncrakes, uh, they've been benefiting from more targeted action on the ground really where um, uh, schemes like the National Parks and Wildlife Service Corncrake Grant Scheme have been working with farmers to try and uh, I suppose keep corncrakes breeding in their core areas but in the last three years as well the Corncrake Life Project which is funded by the EU Life Programme it's been very very active in key areas and it's been very proactive in terms of the delivery of conservation measures for the birds. So rather than responding to the birds just showing up in areas, the Life Project has been building habitat for the birds so that birds, when they're successful in breeding, those young corncrakes that are born here in Ireland, they have new areas to move into and again, new areas to return to where they're safe and they've got really good quality habitat. John, well done on this. It's, as you said, a positive conservation news story for change, which is really wonderful and it's certainly a move in the right direction. Uh, obviously, corncrakes still have a, a very long way to go before they reach the levels they once were. In fact, probably because of lack of habitat, they'll never reach those historic levels. But still, it's great to see that they're becoming more secure. You mentioned there about the young birds moving into new areas. How much of a limiting factor is that? Is there a lot of corncrake habitat out there available for them to take up? Yeah, it's a great question, Niall. I mean... A lot of it first comes down to how successful the brood is. Um, you know, a corncrack female will lay 10 eggs and hopefully 10 chicks will hatch. How many of those actually make it to adulthood? The attrition rate is pretty high. Corncracks, in terms of being a mother, after 10 days, she's no longer involved with the chicks, so they're on their own. So we first need to get those numbers up. But in terms of the habitat then, moving out into habitat, you know, you'd be surprised how much good corncrack habitat is actually out there. But habitat is not just a spatial thing, it's also a temporal thing. And corncrakes need time. They need actually quite a long time during the summer period in order to get to adulthood and successfully breed. So what we need to do is work with landowners and farmers to extend their agricultural activities later into the summer. So you could have wonderful corncrake habitat, but if a farmer has to go in there and mow that grassland for silage in 
you know, the end of June or the middle of July, that wonderful corncrake habitat ceases to exist immediately. It's annihilated in, in the space of about a half an hour. So a key part of it is recognising there is habitat, but then putting measures in place that we can retain that habitat well into August and possibly even early September if we can. Another limiting factor for corncrakes is that they're remarkably short-lived birds, so they don't get too many attempts to get it right. If they lose their, their broods or fail to breed for maybe two years in a row, that could be it for them. Is that a problem with the project too? Yeah, absolutely, Niall. I mean, we, we know that the birds live for two, three years in the wild if they're lucky. So if you take a female corncrake that lives for three years and she might only breed successfully in years two and three, she may produce 40 40 eggs and out of those 40 eggs she has to replace herself in the population to keep it stable but we need more than that we need not just her to replace herself but to maybe replace herself four or five times so that we can get the population up and I think that's been the key to the success here in in our projects so far is that while there's such a focus on the on the male corncrake because of his conspicuous noise about 90% of our work is actually protecting the silent partner, which is the female. So working at the landscape level to ensure that the female is protected, her nest is protected, her chicks are protected. And indeed, every single corncrake that we can is recorded and some measure put in place to protect them because every bird matters when you've got such a low number of the species. It often surprises people that a bird that is as secretive and seemingly reluctant to fly as the corncrake is a long distance migrant. Ireland, of course, is only part of the story. We only see a fraction of their lives here. Uh, in terms of the migration of these birds, how are they being impacted, do you know, about things like, like climate change and unsettled weather patterns, food availability when they're not here with us in Ireland? And is that a factor in their survival? It's a great question, Niall, and I'm afraid we don't have all the answers to it. There's so many things that could be possibly happening on their flyway that we don't know, and also in their, their wintering grounds or their non-breeding grounds, really, um, which we believe to be in, in the Western Congo, uh, similar to the Scottish birds. So there are definitely factors that impact them in terms of when they're not here in Ireland. But the research back in the late 90s, there was com really comprehensive research done in Scotland in the late 90s and early noughties on the birds, that the factors affecting decline were all on the breeding grounds. Uh, so here in Ireland and Scotland and the UK, etc. So there may be things happening outside of our control. We don't know. We just don't have the research. But I'm talking to you here from Falcara in Donegal and it's early September. So we're definitely seeing a warmer climate. This may benefit birds uh, like the corncrake in Ireland because it extends their season and they're not subject to uh, really harsh weather conditions. But that's positive here, but how that impacts them on their migration and their overwintering grounds, we really don't know. So if they're still present on the breeding grounds in, in Donegal and elsewhere, when would you expect them to leave and to depart for Africa? Well, last week we had a, a very good report of about three young corncrakes that were about 20 days old. And that's quite late in the year for young birds like that. So possibly a third brood of corncrakes, who knows? But we would expect the majority of the birds to be leaving now in the next two, three weeks. Usually by mid-September, most of the birds have left. But if there was a third brood of corncrakes, which isn't unheard of, it is probably quite rare, those birds probably wouldn't be ready to leave until early October. John, uh, I wonder about things like islandization. I believe that corncrake chicks are very faithful to their origins. The ones that 
are born in the west of Ireland will go back to the west of Ireland. Now, is there a critical mass factor here? If they come back to the west of Ireland, they are encountering other possible breeders who also came from the west of Ireland. Uh, Is that going to lead to a certain consanguinity? Is it going to mean that inbreeding is going to become a bit of a problem? And what are the options about moving elsewhere? Can a young corncrake decide to move to the east of Ireland or onto Scotland or where? Are they tied down as much as that? Yeah, well, we know that the birds have a very high habitat fidelity, especially this Western European population in Ireland and Scotland. And they generally return to within five or 10 kilometres of where they're born. Now, there was fantastic research done on birds in Germany where they were radio tagged. And they actually discovered that those birds uh, moved around an awful lot more than our birds did. Uh, and there were actually, a lot of the males were somewhat nomadic in that uh, they might arrive to an area, but they'll push on into a new area. So they were a little bit maybe more exploratory than our Western populations. But there's another kind of question there that we'd love to be able to answer is that I think we have no doubt that our Irish population of corncrakes are somehow inherently linked to the Scottish population as well. Uh, When we looked at population trends between 2013, 2014 and 2015, that's when we had the last significant spike in the number of birds in Ireland and it coincided exactly with a large spike in the number of birds in Scotland as well. So you kind of might wonder, is that a metapopulation of birds that actually mix on the wintering grounds? And perhaps we get a few Scottish ones coming back with our Irish ones, so there's a little bit of mixing, genetic mixing going on, hopefully. But also we've seen in the last couple of years uh, Irish birds, well, birds returning to Ireland, showing up in non-traditional areas. So like this year, we had a bird on the Aran Islands, and that was the first time in about 25 years that a corncrake arrived to the Aran Islands. And he spent all summer there. So he definitely had a partner because if he didn't, he would have left. We've also seen birds reestablish themselves in County Kerry. And this year, again, we've seen range expansion into parts of South Donegal where we didn't have birds for several years. So... They do have a high habitat fidelity, but I'm sure that within that population, there are kind of outlier birds that are going to push that habitat fidelity, somewhat nomadic, perhaps even birds not born in Ireland, but mixing with that Irish population and the overwintering grounds. So they're they're enigmatic birds and we know so much about them, but we have so much to learn about them too. Can I ask you about preparations you make for corncrakes before they arrive at all? I believe that it is a good idea to grow nettles, nettles, um, or not grow them, but allow nettles to develop or crops or whatever, where the corncrakes, when they arrive from Africa, can rest up and hide and where they are safe. Also, you should cut from the centre of the field outwards and not from the outside inwards. Are these methods being successful? Have they been tested? Is cutting from the inside still going on and is it more widespread now than it was? Yeah, Richard, we've kind of three key aspects to the conservation action for corn cricks that we call early, middle and late. Early cover refers to that early cover that you mentioned, which is crucial for the birds. So when they arrive back to Ireland in mid-April to these coastal areas, because they're almost entirely coastal now, growth is very, very limited. So if we have natural herbaceous canopy forming plants 
in large clusters such as nettles, cow parsley, common hogweed, that becomes a target for the birds. They like that type of cover, so it attracts them. So we are actively creating blocks of ground like that with farmers in their fields. It's very difficult, in fact, to grow nettles when you want them to grow. They often grow where you don't want them to grow. Uh, but the other factor, of course, is growing crops. Corn crakes didn't get their names. They're not nettle crakes. And we know that the birds really do enjoy using crops, particularly late in the season. So we've begun growing crops such as oats and kale and tritic kale and buckwheat. And what this has also done is created heterogeneity within the landscape. So the birds have more options when they return. The second part of it then is middle, which is middle out mowing or wildlife friendly mowing, where contractors cut the meadows from the centre of the field to the outside, which gives the birds a chance to run into continuous cover and escape from the mower. And I'm delighted to say out of the 1500 hectares we had in the project this year, every field in the project by default undertakes wildlife friendly mowing, which is monitored by our team. So it's far more widespread. And that wildlife friendly mowing is now also linked into what we call refuge areas. So farmers sign up to leave a five metre margin or a nice big headland in the field. So not only does the bird have somewhere to escape into, there's a refuge kept in place for anywhere from two weeks to a month so that the bird has continuous cover and a corridor to move between fields. And the final part of it, of course, is late. The later you mow the meadow, the better for the birds. So the longer that farmers are willing to leave their fields for us and for the birds, the more reward they get in terms of their financial payment. Well, it's great news. A 35% increase. John, congratulations to you and the team. And we'll talk to you again. Thanks a million, John. Thanks very much, Derek. 90-year-old retired dairy farmer Tony Bergen is a well-known inventor based in South County Offaly. And since COVID-19 restrictions came into force, he has been cocooning at home. But now, every evening after his tea, he calls his new friend from the fields for his supper. He called me. Here, he called me. Named after the virus that forged their relationship, Tony now feeds this wild fox daily, and the relationship has developed to the point that the fox feeds from Tony's knees. I, I get great enjoyment out of this thing. I'd be looking forward to every evening. It's fascinating to study him. I, I, I'm thrilled to be that it did happen. Ma, ma. Near Shannon Harbour, farmer Martin Guinan is raising two orphaned fox cubs. He has been feeding them three times daily for the past two months. Hello. Hello. People have kind of slowed down. They've kind of returned more to the country, you know, within their own distance, the 2 km's or the 5 km's. And they've noticed nature more. They have more time. Whereas before, where before maybe I wouldn't have time even to notice them or know they were here or even time to come down and feed them. It's not known how many foxes there are in Ireland, but their numbers are estimated to be in the region of 200,000. They're Ireland's only wild dog. And as opportunistic hunters, they will quickly adapt to any new source of food. Now, that report from Tommaso Manin from RTE News on Rural Foxes appears to be in line with new research from the University of Hull, which says red foxes are one of the most widespread carnivores on the planet, 
However, despite frequent stories, images and videos portraying them as pests in urban areas due to their exploitation of food-related objects, and they give examples, raiding the contents of outdoor bins, it is unknown whether they are bolder and more innovative in terms of their likelihood of exploiting these resources compared to rural populations. We're joined now by animal behaviourist Blake Morton from the Department of Psychology at the University of Hull who led the research. Blake, you say that urban foxes are bolder but not necessarily cleverer than their rural cousins. (laughs) <laughs> yes. So there are many ways of looking at, um, you know, how clever an animal is. Our particular way was was informed based on uh, the impact we believe urbanization is having on wildlife. Wildlife are exposed to a lot of novel objects, so like food related containers and things that, you know, you find in trash or thrown on streets and so forth. Um, and so we wanted to find out whether or not these were basically glorified puzzles for for wildlife. And we used urban foxes as an example because they're, they're basically a flagship for um, urban green space. And what we found was that they were indeed a little bit bolder within cities um, in terms of their willingness to approach these these kind of strange looking objects. Uh, but they weren't really willing to to stay and persist long enough to try and access them. We found more often that they they would quit and move on to something else, which was quite interesting. So so I would clarify by saying that they they probably are quite intelligent, um, but they don't necessarily use it um, for all contexts. Blake, um, the experiments that you're doing or that you have been doing on these foxes, do you think that that urban foxes, because there's a wider variety of food available, but also it's more ephemeral perhaps, do they have to be more resourceful or more adaptable when it comes to trying to exploit those food sources? We suspect that one of the reasons why they may not be motivated to uh, problem solve in this particular way is because in cities, there's so much free food available, um, whether it's people, you know, discarding trash in the street um, or, you know, you go up to the high street and uh, you'll see people throwing their chippies all, all over the place. Um, uh, animals, of course, like people love an easier alternative. They don't like to put effort in something unless they have to. So we suspect that's the case here, um, that uh, if they, you know, persist long enough, they probably are perfectly capable of solving them. And indeed, we did find that foxes could solve the puzzles. Um, they just, I think, had maybe a motivation to do so. Whether it's due to food, though, specifically, we need the evidence for that. So that's what my team is currently looking at um, in more detail. When you're doing these experiments, do you have to take care to make sure that the the, the scent of, of human beings is minimised? Because I'm, I'm just surmising that foxes that live in urban environments eating food that's been discarded by humans or they're living in our, in our gardens and coming up our driveways, they're probably quite habituated to the scent of humans. And although they may not let, let us get right up close to them and touch them, they'll often walk very close. They don't seem to mind. Whereas I'm surmising again, maybe I'm completely wrong, that foxes in more rural areas won't be so habituated to human scent. Would they be put off from maybe approaching some of these, these food sources that you're testing? them with? We tested that because we, with our puzzles, we would spray half of them with deodorizer. Um, and, and while it's really hard to get rid of smell entirely, you can at least reduce it um, using this spray. And we found no impact of that on Fox's behavior. We suspect that, though, you know, within cities, uh, just they're kind of a protective veil from risks associated with with um, uh, getting killed out in the wild. So, you know, of course, humans in cities are quite tolerant of urban wildlife uh, relative to out in the countryside. Um, so there is probably some sort of factor going on there in terms of their proximity and habituation to people. Um, but we, we don't suspect that that actually re- really um, the smell of people on these puzzles didn't seem to have an impact uh, necessarily. 
This urbanisation phenomenon with foxes, it's something that I've been familiar with ever since I was a small child here in Ireland. I know across Britain it's a very common phenomenon as well. When I've spoken to friends in places like France and Germany, though, they still tend to think of foxes as these very hard to see, very, very wild animals. And they actually would panic when they see them coming into a city because they think almost like it's like a wolf or something that's going to hurt them. Uh, are, are we seeing increased urbanisation of foxes elsewhere in their massive range? Because I've, I've seen foxes all across Europe, across Asia, across North America, the same species, red fox. And when I was living for a while in upstate New York, although I would see red foxes, I didn't associate them coming into urban areas or going through through the trash cans. I'd associate raccoons maybe doing that. And maybe you'd even see in some parts of the, the state, you see coyotes sometimes doing that, but not the red fox. So that's the million pound question, actually, that we're trying to answer. Outside of the United Kingdom and, and Ireland, you don't really get urban foxes behaving in the way that we see here. Um, if you go, to, say, to Paris and ask people if they've ever seen an urban fox, they'll look at you like you're crazy. And it's the same in the United States. Um, you, you do indeed see them, but their visibility is, is very different um, in the British Isles for reasons we don't yet understand fully. Um, again, you do get them in other parts um, of the world, in cities uh, like in Estonia. Um, you, there's some studies coming out um, showing uh, uh, an urban impact there, uh, or like in Zurich and Switzerland. So it's, it's happening, but uh, for whatever reason, there's something special about the way foxes are thriving within uh, cities here. I suspect it has something to do with, uh, well, a combination of factors, one of which is, is that in the British Isles, the culture is is largely um, uh, in terms of developing cities where you have lovely little gardens, and that's an opportunity for wildlife to thrive. Um, you don't necessarily get that in other um, parts of the world. Um, so that's one reason. Another reason we suspect is that um, people uh, in the British Isles are really, they're, you know, they're, they, they love nature um, and they actively encourage them to their gardens. And while in some respects that is wonderful because it's great for people to connect and it has really important health benefits for being connected to nature. Um, but on the other hand, we have to be incredibly mindful that they're not pets and that we have to always respect them for what they are and not for what we want them to be. And so I think that there's probably something going on there in that regard where maybe we've got large scale uh, provisioning and leaving out free food for wildlife. And that's just kind of encouraging them uh, to approach us in ways that a wild animal probably uh, normally wouldn't do. Yes, I think that's a very important point there, Blake. I think that um, a lot of people, because we're used to maybe feeding birds in our gardens and, and you know, there's no real adverse consequence for that. The birds aren't aware that humans are putting food out for them, whereas the foxes can be. Um, and it's never a really very good idea when a wild animal, particularly a wild carnivore, learns to associate humans with food. And this can lead to conflict. Um, I've been seeing, particularly in places like London, there seems to be a growing concern among people that these foxes are somehow becoming dangerous. I know there's the, the occasional story of them getting into people's houses or hurting somebody and that of course makes all the media headlines that's only a, a tiny tiny proportion of, the, of foxes an infinitesimally small percentage that would be involved in that most still do have a healthy fear of humans but is it important that foxes and, and humans do keep their distance from each other and is this increasing urbanisation that we're seeing all over the globe is that going to lead to more conflicts what, what do you think Blake? So th- that's also those are really good points um, I, I I think that you know London is in, in the south of England is, is quite a, a, a an, an area of special interest to us. Um, uh, we see foxes behaving in ways that we don't see um, in, in other parts of uh, Great Britain, where our study has been taking place. And the question is why? Uh, of course, obviously, London is the biggest city on Great Britain, so it, that could very well be the, the explanation. There's something going on about you know, or within that big city. 
Um, but you know, we also have other big cities like Edinburgh and Glasgow, uh, Glasgow with like a million people. So that's, that's, you know, there's something else we think going on that's unique to the south of, of the island uh, that we're, we're exploring. I would also say, you know, an answer to your kind of question is, of course, foxes are, are ecologically and culturally important. So by no means um, should any of this kind of work be taken out of context to say that foxes don't belong within cities. They're very much a part of urban green space. And they're so important, uh, not just from ecological uh, standpoints, but also, again, from that cultural standpoint, they're iconic um, and intrinsically entwined within human culture. And so it's really important that we share that positive connection with them. So I would say that this research really shows that while that they are indeed getting bolder within cities. Rather than promoting pest control, we should promote coexistence uh, because they belong there just as much as we do. I think that stereotypically in, 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 in pop culture, we, we classify uh, foxes as a, as a carnivore, as a predator, but they're incredibly shy animals. Um, and, and it's only when you, you know, actively encourage them to be right around you that that increases opportunities for conflict. So, so foxes don't really want to seek us out unless you have a, a bowl of chicken or something for them. So I would say it's, it's important that we remember that these aren't pets, that they're, they should be appreciated for what they are and not what we want them to be. And like I said, stereotypically with, with this idea of a, of a um, urban pest for the fox, what we find is that Bin raiding behavior and raiding trash and scavenging through streets and stuff like that is indeed something that urban foxes do. But our research actually suggests that they don't seem to do it as often as people think. So that's fascinating from our perspective because we're psychologists and we're looking at that psychological connection between humans and nature. And we think that in some respects, what we think foxes do isn't always mapped on reality, uh, and which is an area that we're moving into uh, research-wise. I think that to a large extent, these notions of bin raiding foxes stems from uh, specific populations, which might say, you know, like people in the United States wouldn't, would not, would not understand that foxes in London are raiding bins, bins because they have raccoons doing that. Uh, foxes in the United States don't do that. So our, our point with this, with this research is to show that animals are very nuanced in their behavior. And so if you have a conflict with an animal, there's something going on in the life of that specific animal that's driving its behavior. Just because you're an urban fox does not mean you're going to necessarily behave bold and also does not mean you're necessarily going to raid someone's bin. Blake, if the red fox had feathers, it would be a red kite. Now, in the cities in this part of the world, back in the Middle Ages, kites were all over the place, scavenging and cashing in on all the offal and filth that was laid everywhere. What happened with the fox? The fox didn't seem to do that back in those days. It seemed that sometime in the middle of the 20th century, the 20th century fox suddenly decided to become an urbanite or did it. Now, what triggered that? That's actually really fascinating. I would love to have a time machine to go back in time to figure that out um, because we, we actually just don't know. Um, there's no hardcore evidence for this. And I know that we have public records for when, when foxes started to be reported. Um, but I think that foxes have had a long history living within our, our urban spaces or you know our, our towns um, before, before they became highly developed. Um, when we rely on what people say they've observed, in some 
some ways that can be true, but we also, of course, think within our own lives that often can't be true or isn't necessarily true. So I would say without the actual evidence, I don't know if indeed this rise in, in foxes colonizing our cities is something that's happened in, in the 20th century. What I would say is that it probably has become more visible. Um, and that's probably stemming from the, the fact that foxes are becoming a bit bolder. So they're um, like in London, for instance, they've, they've said for a long time, um, city managers, that fox populations in London are at carrying capacity. Um, and this idea that foxes are becoming more abundant in the city is actually just stemming from the fact that they're becoming more visible because of their boldness. Have they been driven out as refugees from the countryside? As the countryside becomes less and less suitable for a wild creature at all, they had were forced to move to the city. But now the city is a funny place. It's not one thing. It's a whole patchwork of habitats. Is there a concentration within cities for foxes to go to the suburbs, the inner city, waste sites, industrial sites? Is there some kind of bias? Do they do better in some of these it would seem odd that they would gravitate towards the leafy suburbs, for instance, because there's no filth or offal for them to scavenge on in there. There'd be no dead animals or whatever. Uh, is there a division within the urban environment? So I would say the suburbs are, are perfect areas for, for foxes to thrive because of that, that um, leafy green garden um, landscape that you get with people's homes. Um, and that is something that we think is a characteristic of, of the UK and how we structure our cities here. It's just opportunities for foxes to, to thrive. And that is one of the, the reasons why people um, suspect that at the t- turn of the century, um, well, actually around, around the 1930s, uh, foxes became more prevalent because homes were being built with those little gardens, um, which allowed greater occupancy for foxes. There are rural urban minglings, as it were. Uh, they're not necessarily cut off from each other. I, we don't really know necessarily for London specifically. Um, uh, there is flow though probably going on there. And if you look at maps of cities, um, uh, uh, at least within the UK, um, we see there's lots of lovely green space even in cities. So that allows for wildlife to thrive. So it's really important that we try to protect that because of course humans have a long history of trying to remove ourselves from nature. Um, and so uh, we want those trees, we want the plants, we want the green spaces to be uh, protected so that we can encourage as best we can wildlife to behave normal. So to sum up, is the urban fox bolder but not necessarily cleverer than its rural cousin? We had two conclusions. The first conclusion was that um, as as we suspect, urban foxes are indeed getting bolder. But contrary to our, our hypothesis, they weren't necessarily more willing to problem solve in this way. And that's contrary to what we think of as a cliche urban fox that raids your bend and tries to take those, those opportunities. There's much more nuance going on there that we don't yet fully understand. And so again, just because you're an urban fox doesn't necessarily you'll behave bold. Um, and it also doesn't necessarily mean you'll use your problem-solving abilities to uh, engage in things that might lead to conflict with people, for instance, uh, raiding your bin. Foxes, of course, do indeed do that, but they don't always do that. And so if you have an animal that is a source of conflict for you, there's something again going on within the, the, the life of that animal that's driving that. And so just being mindful of, of how to interact with that uh, uh, foxes is, is really crucial. Again, we're, we're promoting coexistence here. And so 
urban residents, people need to learn how to uh, live alongside the wildlife because the urban wildlife are our last connection to the natural world and cities. And so we want to protect that. Blake, thank you very much indeed. Oh, of course. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Any excuse to talk about foxes is, you know, nicer than the, the, the work I have to do when I get off the phone. <laughs> Absolutely. I'll bet. Anyway, thanks again. Now, Niall Hatch, before we finish up, I'm going to call in our old mate, Ken Whelan. Ken is our fisheries scientist and has been for, oh, more years than I care to remember. And even that he cares to remember, you know, Ken Whelan, Niall. Oh, absolutely. Ken, actually, a quick story. Ken gave me my favourite pair of socks that I actually own. I use them to this day. We had, uh, we had, I remember we had a, a Mooney Goes Wild Christmas oh, gathering Christmas with the gathering, Secret Santa yeah. and Ken gave me this pair of socks that I absolutely love them. So. Still smelling as fresh as ever, I hope. <laughs> no comment. Anyway, Ken is going to talk to us now about a course for adults, volunteers and community groups that wish to become saltwater detectives and learn about the amazing range of marine animals, plants, seaweeds and bird life found in County Louth. Hello, Ken. How are you? Hi, Derek. How are you? You want to tell us about a course you're organising over the next three weekends? Yeah, that's right. So we're running what we call the Saltwater Detective Course in County Louth. And uh, it'll be starting this coming weekend. And we'll be starting it with uh, some classroom uh, education, if you like, just some theory. But then we'll be going out each afternoon then to have a look at some of the local beaches. And it'll be followed then by visits to places like Carlingford. We'll be looking at Clough Head. We'll also be in the beautiful estuary that is Anagassan. We ran it last year and it was really successful. And you got a lot of help from Niall Hatch, I believe, Niall. You were giving them some tips on where they might find some birds? Well, yes, Dundalk Bay and that region of County Louth is one of the most important places in all of Ireland for birds, particularly for migratory waders. Uh, and that just points to how rich the biodiversity is there because the birds are there to feed on that. So, uh, yeah, you couldn't really do a saltwater detective course without at least covering the birds to some degree. So Saltwater detective. I love it, Ken. I love it. You're not alone, presumably. No, I'm not at all. So this year we have some really, really great people helping us. So we have a chap called William McElhenney. And not alone is William an expert on seaweed in terms of identifying the seaweeds, but he's also an expert in terms of how to cook your seaweed and how you can actually include it in your dishes at home. So that should be exciting. We also have Jackie Hunt, who's one of the foremost ecologists in Ireland. Jackie is going to come down and reveal all of the subtleties of bird life in the estuary at Anagassan. And we've delayed that part of the course until early October. So it's the 6th and 7th of October so that we'll hit the beginning of the invasion that happens every year when thousands of birds appear in Anagassan. And finally then we've Margaret McCall from Dublin City University who has these wonderful citizen science kits and we're going to teach people how they can see if their estuarine water is clean and how they can detect pollution in the estuaries. Now are these full weekends, Ken, or do you go up on a Saturday and go home and then come back on Sunday or what? way does it work? So they're, they're full weekends in the sense that the first weekend is, is split in two. It's a single day. Single day North Loud, single day South Loud. But the other weekends really are full days. So on the 23rd and 24th of September they're full days and they'll be, as I said, in Carlingford and in Clarehead. And then the final uh, two days on the 7th and 8th of October will be in Anagassan. We'll do the birds one day and then I'll do ecology and uh, then Margaret will do the water chemistry on the Sunday. And will a boy or a girl be expected to stay overnight? Well, it's confined to people that live in County Louth because... (laughs) 
it's, what's it's, discrimination? It is Ella? absolute discrimination. <laughs> it's funded by Louth Development, by the leader company. Uh, so the people are all local, uh, so they don't really have to stay overnight. I such. see. And do they have to pay, though? Uh, they don't have to pay. I should have mentioned that. Oh, of course. my goodness. It's that's gloriously fantastic. A free, free course. So you, you have six days, three weekends free. Where would you get it? Here, right, well, there, with you, with somebody like you. Anyway, all the details will be on our website, rte.ie forward slash Mooney, and we'll give you the link to follow where you can sign up if you live in the County Louth area. But how can you prove whether people live in the County Louth area or not, Ken? Well, I'm not I'm not going to actually check their postcodes. No. But at the same time... You'll be inundated now, you know that. Of course we expect people to be honest. Of course we do. We already have a huge amount of uh, interest. I think it'll be fun. I'm looking forward to it. Could you qualify under the granny rule? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you know, if your granny came from County Louth Well we'll be checking accents as well we check oh, accents I see. as well right. yeah. All right. If you don't sound anything like Aidan and Elana you're not getting in Anyway Ken thank you very much indeed for that That's pretty much all we have time for today My thanks to Richard Collins and Niall Hatch Don't forget you can visit the website anytime you like rte.ie forward slash Mooney Our researcher was John Bell O'Reilly and our broadcast coordinator was Daniel Keating Until next time Goodbye, goodbye, goodbye 